0: Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and in today's episode, we'll be taking a stroll down memory lane in Los Angeles. Our special guest tonight is known as the funniest guy in Hollywood. He's an accomplished songwriter, actor, comedian, and the biggest thing out of Patterson, New Jersey, Bruce Valanche. So I decided today I'm going to, instead of just directly asking you questions, I'm going to mention 10 fun facts about Bruce Valanche, and then we can talk about each one of them afterwards. That's a good idea.
1: That'll be different. Maybe we'll get something that we didn't get before. One never knows, do one. Nope. So here we go.
0: All right. Fun fact, number one, about Bruce Valanche. He started his career as a model. Uh, well, yes. As, as, yeah,
1: I did. I was a charming chub. Uh, I should, that was for Lane Bryant. Lane Bryant uh, was a chain of stores for uh, the, the Forgotten Woman, sort of like plus-size Americans. Plus-size had not been invented yet. It was just like for fat broads. <laughs> it's where fat women went to shop. And uh, I guess there were not enough fat women because they decided to have a line for fat kids. So uh, I, mo- I was a kid and I was a model. It was called Charming Chubs. Then I became a stylish stout, which, as you can imagine, didn't last long. And then I graduated to Husky, uh, and which Husky, which is still around. Husky is neither man nor boy. You're just Husky. You're yeah. a big kid. I, and I they, think so. that was like, uh, that was out of their league. There was no way you could make these kids look good. So, uh, and eventually, I mean, it disbanded because it was, they were asking a lot of money for children's clothing. So, uh, um, but that was, it, it set me on a career of, of, to modeling, which hit a wall as soon as I got too big. <laughs> I wasn't cute anymore. I was just kind of there. So uh, that was the end of that. But I was a child actor at the same time and uh there was i was I was doing a lot of that, but I also kind of outgrew that because i I never looked like I could play kids' parts uh, after that I, I always looked like i I was born forty I looked like uh uh the floor walker in department stores uh, you know or the that that character that Gail Gordon you know mrs Carmichael, who that kind of character or you know Gladys Kravitz the next door neighbor I just wasn't um uh uh you know child actor material Uh, and i was that's why i kind of started writing because uh uh, i was competing with actors who were twice my age and that they were getting
0: cast and and i wasn't so So, fun fun fact number two bruce valance was gay before stonewall
1: Oh, well, yes, Bruce Vance was probably gay from birth, but uh, we never go into it too deeply. Yeah, I mean, I came of age before Stonewall, uh, and um, uh, I was always, I was like bisexual, actually, uh, which I think everybody is until they're about 25, and then they really commit, Uh, but... Uh, there, and there was no non-binary, there was no fluid. There, I mean, this was all from, this was the, you know, the Jurassic period of, of, of homosexuality in America. But I, uh, I, I came of age, but I wasn't old enough to really be into the bar scene at that point. I was just getting there. And the bar scene, of course, uh, was very treacherous back then because uh, you could be arrested just for touching somebody. Uh, casually, you know, reaching for a peanut, uh, and there were vice cops all over. Because they would send the cops out from the vice squad because it was an easy collar to pick up some guy, some gay guy, for for touching them in a bar, and then it went on their record, and and there was a bail, and the the, the state made money, and et cetera, et cetera. That's our criminal justice system, uh, and of course, one of the things that that gay liberation people all began arguing at the beginning was an end to that kind of harassment. Uh, so anyway, yes, I was. Stonewall was the beginning. There, there were other places where it happened before Stonewall, but Stonewall you know, got the spotlight because it was New York and because it was on the heels of Judy Garland's death, which the media conflated it with. So, uh, But as a result, people all over the country saw what was happening and they said, the revolution has begun and uh, so the like-minded gay people and their allies began structuring uh, an activist network right from there.
0: Was Stonewall kind of a sigh of relief for you when that happened? Did you start to feel a little bit more comfortable about about being gay and being out at that point? Uh no
1: because it was a uh, I mean, we, we pretend it was a big deal. It was not a big deal in terms of society. It was a big deal in terms of our society. So it didn't change anything materially. It changed our mood. It changed the activism. There began to be a, a, an activist element that had been buried uh, in, in sub-grows of things like the Mattachine Society, Uh, But there were uh, it it didn't you didn't feel any different when you were out and about on the town. But I was first of all, I was as I said, I was I was like bisexual. I always had girlfriends and I always thought that was what I wanted to do. And at a certain point, I realized that if I really wanted to marry a woman and have children with her, she deserved better than a guy who was going to go skulking off to the Greyhound uh, station to pick up a sailor. And uh, I, I, that was, when they say gay is a choice, I made a choice uh, uh, to be my authentic
0: self as opposed to masquerading as somebody else. Right, and back at that time, you know, I know I came out about probably 10 years or so after you did. And um, there wasn't really a whole lot of comprehension for even for us as to what it meant to be gay. You know, you had gay encounters but you didn't understand the concept of a gay lifestyle and having a gay partner for a long time or having a, you know, permanent relationship. It was, yeah. it was difficult to come to terms with that.
1: Well, I think, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that was absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, because uh, you, you had a sexual drive and you exercised it, but that didn't mean you were looking to live that life. It meant you were looking to satisf- to scratch that itch and that you had other plans for your actual life. And at a certain point, you realized this was gonna be a fundamental part of your life and you might as well adjust uh, adjust your sights. Um, and there was also of course, no no concept of coming out at that time. People didn't make declarations. Uh, they It was all very quiet. I mean, coming out happened later and I'm glad it did because it was the only way that we got mass visibility. Uh, the idea of actually announcing to the world and having enough pride to announce to the world that you were gay and it was okay. Uh, that that came later on. That was a, a separate piece of activism that got some traction.
0: Now, according to some sources. Yes. You, sounds like the beginning of Draining uh, Men. <laughs> you made Bette Midler famous. No, I read didn't articles didn't that that, <laughs> that claim that it was largely your influence that kind of brought her to the forefront of the gay entertainment community, which then catapulted her into fame. Obviously yeah. she has talent, but tell us about, I also, tell sorry, us about sorry. your experience with, with Beth, how
1: you met. I, and- I, I, I could never make that claim because she was well on her way. I mean, she had, she, uh, I mean, I didn't tell her to go play the Continental Baths. I mean, that was something that happened. And things began to grow from there. That was where she got her initial gay fan base. And uh, and then she began, off of that, she got uh, other nightclub appearances and um, got a record deal. And the first record came out, The Divine Miss Anne, and uh, the first hit was Do You Want to Dance? And it, it had immense it had appeal across the board. She became uh, a star off of that. Uh, and then she started touring and there was a thing in the gay community because she started in the baths and because whenever you would see her on television, you felt like you knew her. You felt like she got you because she was campy and she had the same sensibilities that were going around at that time. The nostalgia for and love of the old music and the old movies and the kind of outre view of the world and uh, and view of yourself. That uh, you're doing the best you can, <laughs> uh, and you were an outsider. You were not conventional. You weren't standard. She didn't look like Karen Carpenter. Uh, she didn't sing like Karen Carpenter. She, didn't, she was not one of those. She was not a Hollywood blonde. She was she was an unusual character. I mean, the closest thing was Barbara Streisand and Janis Joplin on the you know on the other side, and and somewhere in the middle was Tina Turner. So she was which all were were influences on her but i think that that word began spreading and and when we first started touring uh, the the crowd that showed up was predominantly gay because uh, the word got out and uh, and it just built and built and as she got more exposure of course the crowd got bigger but we used to joke like when we would play oklahoma city in a, a 3000 seat arena and she she would say well i sure hope nobody in town needs a blowout because every hair burner in the world is here so <laughs> You know, it was it was like that.
0: Now, in addition to writing um, comedy pieces for for Bet, you also were involved in a couple of. Um, of her more famous numbers, uh, you were involved with Clams on a Half Shell,
1: Divine yeah, Madness.
0: I, I co-wrote that. Uh, Divine Madness. Know. Yeah. And the infamous Johnny Carson Farewell song, You Made Me Watch You. That's written by
1: me and Mark Shaman and Bette. The three of us sat down and uh, and came up with that whole segment for the for the the penultimate Johnny Carson show, where she was actually going to be the last guest, because Robin Williams was the lead guest, and then Bette came on and she was it was the end, and it was the last time that anybody would see that show in that format. The next night he did a ninety minute monologue. Uh, so uh, we sat down and you know she had done I think. 27 uh tonight show appearances with johnny and we wanted to try and recreate that kind of thing where she came out with a big up-tempo number and then sat down and talked to him and they would sometimes she would sometimes sing a little something while she was sitting there and then she would finish clothes with a big ballad and so that was how we that was how we built it and it became iconic i mean it was uh uh, I mean, we did it on a Friday. It, was, it aired on a Thursday, actually. And on Monday, Jay Leno took over and Billy Crystal came out and did a parody of it, which we uh, Mark was also involved in. And <laughs> then <laughs> and then later that year, The Simpsons did it. They they had her serenading Krusty the Clown <laughs> on, oh, on, on his last show somewhere, I don't know, some <laughs> circus in Springfield. <laughs> but there's I have a still of her sitting on a piano. And Krusty is looking up, or sitting on a desk, and Krusty's looking up at her, just like Johnny Carson. And she won an Emmy for that performance, 20 Minutes. It's a category that doesn't exist anymore. It was Best Variety Performance. Uh, It it was too weird because they should bring it back, actually. But then now they, if you're on SNL or or one of those uh, shows, they they put you into the acting category. So
0: there you go. So this may be the um, the most unexpected of the uh, fun facts about Bruce Valanche. You hold a Guinness World Record.
1: Yeah, I do. Walk, walking sideways. Now I'm not sure. If, I haven't looked in a Guinness book lately, or even on a Guinness website, uh, so I don't even know if it's still in there because they kept they keep changing. People keep making bizarre. Uh, record claims and the only way you get in by doing it and having evidence that it actually happened and I was working for the uh, Chicago Today which was a newspaper of the Chicago Tribune that they folded into the Trib Uh, and uh, I did lots of stunt kind of stuff and I decided I'd try and break into the Guinness Book so I did a series about breaking into the Guinness Book trying different things like uh, uh, donut eating and uh, baking the world's largest pizza Um, I had several different categories and the last one was walking sideways. They have, of course, a category for walking across America or Asia and walking backwards across America or Asia, but they didn't have a walking sideways. So we did that. And I walked from the Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue in Chicago to the Water Tower which is where uh, the Chicago Fire started. It was put out, I should say. Uh, and th- those are two iconic uh, landmarks in Chicago on the Magnificent Mile. Uh, and it was about a half a mile, I guess, and it, or maybe a mile, I don't know. But I walked sideways. It was, uh, it was a, a fast track, and there was a, a chopper in the air from the Tribune's TV station, WGN. And of course, we had photographers on the ground. So there was ample evidence that we had, I had actually done this. And they had to put it in the book. And for years, it was in the book. But this is—we're talking. This
0: is almost fifty years ago. The spikes did. Do you still practice walking sideways just in case you have to defend that title at some point? I, I, I do. I do, but I don't realize I'm doing it. <laughs> it's usually after a cocktail or two. One of
1: those. One of those just audio ticks, I guess. That just sort of all of a sudden there I am heading towards the toilet sideways. <laughs> So,
0: fun fact number five, Bruce (laughs) is older than the actual city of West Hollywood.
1: Oh, God, yes. I was around (laughs) everybody. Well, not everybody. There are some twinks who are younger, but uh, I don't even know how old it is now. Is it 30 yet? Yeah. Uh, um, Yeah, it's 37, actually. It's 37. Well, I was. Well, obviously, I'm older than that. Uh, It was 37. I was around when it was uh, when it started, I think. I may have actually been living in the city of West Hollywood. What year was it? Nineteen eighty-four. Oh no, I had already bought. I was in. I was up in the hills in Nichols Canyon, but uh, I had lived in West Hollywood for years before that. But I wasn't voting there anymore, uh, so I didn't get to vote for it. I don't think. I don't. I don't really remember. But I was a, 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 a very stalwart supporter of it. Yeah, because it was basically. Uh, it wasn't the idea of a gay city. I mean. There are gay people, and we said, wouldn't that be great if there were like a gay city where we were in the majority? Well, we weren't in the majority, uh, but it's only 30,000 people, and uh, so we were close. But there, it was renters, was what got the thing made. It was a city about of angry renters. And so the first thing they wanted to do was put in rent control, and that happened. And while they were at it, they began, because the people who ran for a city council were basically a majority gay, I think, of the five people. I think three of them were gay. And uh, so it became kind of like, uh, uh, they branded it the creative city, which of course is code for, you know, the cop-sucking city. <laughs> creative <laughs> people. Uh, uh, so, and it was, uh, it was meant to be, a, a, to draw a, a revenue from, the design uh, industry and uh, from entertainment industry, from uh, but uh, I mean the bars and restaurants and clubs and theaters, uh, not not you know movie studios. There's no room for a movie studio in West Hollywood unless you go back to making silent or porno. They have porno. And in fact, there is some. Uh, but yes, I am older than the city of West Hollywood, and but that's a dubious honor. You know, I mean, I know some people who are older than the city of
0: New Amsterdam. <laughs> Well, the reason I mention that is because, you know, Hollywood has West Hollywood has a, a pretty rich history uh, in the gay scene, largely because long before it was ever an actual city, it was unincorporated Los Angeles County. And that's where a lot of the gay establishments kind of that's right. Migrated to because the um, enforcement of these types of uh, discriminatory laws was lessened out there than it would be if you're actually in the city. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I know the you-
1: city. The city police were notoriously homophobic and uh, anti everything. And if you've seen L.A. Confidential, uh, uh, you you would get that. Not much has changed. However, it was the it was the county sheriff who had the jurisdiction in uh, in West Hollywood until it became a city, and, and then and then they made a deal with the county sheriff. They continued to have the jurisdiction because it's, it's too expensive to actually maintain a police department. Beverly Hills next door has the police department, but they'd been around for a long time already. And obviously, the Beverly Hills tax base is a lot higher than the West Hollywood tax base.
0: Totally so, so.
1: Uh, but that is that is exactly why that that is. Uh, but that's another reason. But but it wasn't the primary reason that it happened. But that it was one of the reasons why it was carved out of um, the area between Beverly Hills and Los Angeles.
0: And I know um, from a previous conversation we've had that you have uh, a little bit of a scoop on a bar there that was pretty well known called Numbers on Sunset Boulevard. Tell us a little bit about your days at Numbers.
1: Uh, Well, Numbers was a a hooker bar, basically. Before the internet, uh, when people actually had to go out on the street to meet people, there were two ways. I mean, there were people on the street, I mean... Selma Avenue and uh, Sunset Boulevard, I mean, the Santa Monica Boulevard were two streets filled with guys standing on the corner pretending to hitchhike and they were actually hookers. And uh, Selma, which is a street below Hollywood Boulevard between Hollywood and Sunset, was so famous for that that Johnny Carson used to make a joke. Doc Severinsen, his band leader, who was straight, had very flamboyant Sergeant Pepper kind of uh, outfits he wore every night. And so he would make veiled jokes about him being this big old queen, which he wasn't. And one of the jokes he made was, uh, a doc was late coming to the show tonight. He was involved in a rear ender on Selma. <laughs> it got a huge laugh from the audience, the local audience, right? The tourists had no idea what he was talking about, but there were enough local people in the crowd. It was a huge, anyway, it's because this, there were lots of these guys. And when they weren't on the street, they were in bars that decorated the whole neighborhood, but not, you know, every bar had a different, flavor and numbers was a particularly the, the particular flavor of numbers where older gentlemen met younger gentlemen and the younger gentlemen were all for hire. So the place was if you were old you were a buyer and if you were young you were a seller. And it was it was on a sunset uh next to what's now the laugh factory. And they it was the street it, it, behind it there was a hill. And so it was built into the side of the hill. And you parked on, behind it on the top in the parking lot, and you entered the building there, and you had to take a stairway down to the club, which was on street level. And, of course, they made perfect effect of that club, of that stairway. Uh, they put mirrors all around. It was called numbers because the guys were, the hookers were, were that this number and that number, and it was all about phone numbers, and that's where that came from. But you would come down the stairs as you entered, there were mirrors all around. And so everybody would just watch people entering like, hello, Dolly. They'd come down the stairs and first you'd see the feet and the legs then the package, then the body, then the face and all that. And you could just, and, and things would, you know, if there was a spectacular number coming in, everybody would kind of mm, be riveted. And also, the, the, um, also <laughs> the, now I think of it, the uh, mirrors were angled. So when you were sitting in the booth, you could look up in the mirror and you could check out the package on the person who was sitting next to you if you were into that sort of thing. Uh so it was it was all artfully designed as a pickup bar, but partially that was because it was transactional. Um everybody who was in there uh was there to make money. So it wasn't like uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna arrange this so people can get to know each other. No, it was it was it was the currency of the day.
0: Now, I understand they also had a really good dinner menu. They did. Uh, that the food was really good there, which is a plus. Uh, and it was
1: a great camouflage. If you just wanted to go, oh, Go to, let's go to Numbers for dinner. The food's great. Okay. And then you would sit there and you'd watch what paraded by you. See, I wasn't that old, but I was not a seller. <laughs> so I was <laughs> deemed, I was deemed a buyer almost immediately.
0: One of my but Facebook friends had remarked that the table service there was excellent and the under table service was even better. <laughs> Not <laughs> wrong.
1: Exactly. Not wrong at all. And there was no cover chart. <laughs> there was no cover. That also, was the minimum. <laughs> Never mind. We could go on forever.
0: <laughs> also in West Hollywood, um, one of the long running infamous faces there was Rage. Did you ever have any experiences there? Was that?
1: Yeah, I, I I MC'd a drag show there. I I would go in. It was a dance club, and I wasn't much into that unless I was really really stoned. Uh, and they had, uh, but they would have funny drag shows, and so I would go in. I knew it all, a lot of drag queens, and and so I would have occasion to go and watch them work. Uh, it was. Uh, it was, but it, that's what it was. It was a dance bar. You know, it's too loud to talk, and you would just either watch the show or dance and carry on. And you know, it was where people picked people. It was a gay bar. People picked people up. You know, there were all kinds of. As your your show is about all kinds of gay bars. There were gay bars where you actually sat at the bar and had a conversation with somebody.
0: Rage was not one of those. <laughs> and they lasted a long time, but they closed last year. They it was a, a COVID closure. Uh, they're gone now, but, but um, he's coming back. They are coming back. Lance Pass says he's opening up the biggest, greatest gay bar in the country, right there. How do you feel about that? Well, I know he has to because he is pregnant with twins—not himself personally. Are you but smart? he and Michael—he
1: and Michael are, are about uh, right around Halloween. They're going to have a, a, a boy and a girl, twins. So, uh, so he has has to have a revenue stream. And Halloween, of course, will be a big night there i 'm sure he 'll be open he 'll be open because he 's a Halloween junkie i 'm sure he 'll be open by then. I think it 's fabulous I mean why shouldn 't it come back and it, you know it, it 's great that there 's like a gay celebrity who's who's working in in the gay community uh, doing that. He already has a place called Rocco's, which is across the street from rage uh, actually and uh, is a big success it 's kind of like a a, a a sports bar on steroids. <laughs>
0: I'm looking forward that to That gives it. you
1: some idea of what, of how we've evolved as a community that we can have sports bars. The only sports bar I ever saw was in Washington. It was called Nellie's in, the, in the, our nation's capital. And that would make sense because there were a lot of, you know, closeted people in politics and they could go to a sports bar and it was a, an innocent place for them to be while at the same time they were making, uh, they were making contacts with other gay guys. And that's Washington. Uh, where everybody has short hair. And then you come out to LA and uh, we there was a sports bar called Gym Bar that also got closed during COVID. But the idea that there could actually be these bars, that there are people. I mean, you, at Gym Bar, they would have like the West Hollywood swim team and there's a West Hollywood soccer team and, and softball. I mean, there are all these gay guys who are into sports in a physical way, uh, which is like a whole different thing. You know, when I was growing up, that was not, that was not what you met when you were out there looking
0: looking for, for gay guys. I understand Jim uh, Bar may be opening up also again, in, the vest- oh, in a different location. location. Yes, near yeah, Lance's new bar,
1: near right down the street, right about a few doors down, in what used to be called the Halal Guys, who I guess uh, I don't know they decided that they there was not enough <laughs> d- desire for Middle Eastern food or something. That it's it, it's a small space, and we're all wondering how Jim Bar will fit in there. Uh, and what, what there is about that space that we don't know because this the space they were in was tiny, but it wasn't quite I don't think it was that tiny, but you know, you never know. I mean I, I may just be talking.
0: Well, we hope they all do well. We need some we need some fresh gay blood in our lives, some fresh gay bars to to keep us going. Fun fact number six Bruce Falanche wrote, Where is my man? Or Earth a Kid. It's true. And I'm,
1: as Earth used to say, you're still asking that question, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I wrote it. Uh, I did. I had written the, the the first draft of an epic film called Can't Stop the Music. And I wrote the first draft and, uh, and quit because the producer, Alan Carr, was auditioning it. For different leading ladies and I kept rewriting it for free and I said you got to pay me now for a second draft and he said no you can you can finish goodbye so but I met Jacques Morale it was a, it was that was a village people movie Jacques Morale invented the village people and he also ran a nightclub in Paris called the crazy horse and, and he didn't run it he, he worked for them but uh he wrote uh, songs for the, for their review and the crazy horse was a, a topless nightclub and these the girls would come out and they would sing, they would lip sync to famous people singing original material. And Jacques would get this one, this thing, that, and that was it. And he had, he got Ertha to do one. And he, uh, he called me and said, Eartha, Eartha is going to do a song for the crazy earth. And, uh, I think you should write the lyric. It's called, where is my man? And so he sent me the track and I wrote a lyric to the track and, we all went to Paris, <laughs> and Eartha recorded it, and it went into the show, and it was hysterical because it was about a seven-foot-tall blonde Amazon with gigantic boobs. How she managed to stand up without pitching forward, I'll never know. And she lip-synced uh, the song, not as Eartha, just like singing, like lip-syncing like she was singing like Eartha. And it was a huge hit, and um, Jacques got a record deal in France on his label there. And it was, it went to number one in France and it, all around the world. It was suddenly, it was a big hit every place but the US because they wouldn't play disco on uh, radio at the time. And radio at the time was how you broke a record, AM radio. So, uh, I had what was called the 12 inch, which is the, the record that they would put, the DJs would play the song on at clubs. And, and for years, people would call me up from all over the place saying, Listen, they're playing your song. You know, they'd be on the dance floor somewhere and they would run to the, a, phone, a phone that was near there. There were no cell phones yet. And I would hear them all, you know, saying, I want a, a yacht, a man with a big, 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 big yacht, which is one of the jokes in this in the song. Anyway, we did an album with Ertha of disco songs and that did very well. And uh, then I, I did some, I did a Village People album with Jacques later on. With a song called "Sex Over the Phone," which was so hot it was banned by the BBC, which when of course, it went to number one. And uh, it was great. It was uh, that was sort of my career as a lyricist, pretty much. <laughs> I'd like to have done more, but I don't know. I kept. I called my friends. They all said, "Yeah, let's write something." And then and then uh, uh, we had a couple of false starts, but you know, nothing really happened. I, I was very good at. You know, classic lyric writers sit down and write the lyric and then the composer comes in and writes. or you do it in a room together. And I was adept at writing to a, to a melody that somebody gave me. Tell me what you wanted and, you know, give me a title and we're off. I suppose if I were writing a musical, it would be whatever the situation was in the musical. But it
0: didn't happen yet. There's still time. Hopeful. Fun fact number seven. Bruce is the title character of a movie called Get Bruce, which is possibly the least known star-studded film in Hollywood history. Tell us about that. Well, well, you know, now there there are so many now. Thank you, Netflix.
1: I mean, there are a million little-known Hollywood films. Uh, But it was 20 years ago, and it was a a documentary, uh, sort of, uh, produced by Harvey Weinstein who never laid a hand on me duty bound hashtag why not me but he did a good job and it was Miramax his company at the time which was acquired by Disney while we were doing it and then so it became a Disney home video item and that was where it really sold well uh, because it had a limited release it was a documentary about uh, what I do about about writing for people and for shows and it had Four big segments with Bette, Robin Williams, Billy, Crystal, and Whoopi, uh, each being interviewed. And then they followed me around a couple of these big production shows that I did uh, and grabbed stars on the hoof. And they were interviewed. And it's really very funny. Robin's brilliant. And my mother is hilarious. They are the stars of the movie. And I look at it occasionally because people ask for one thing or another. And I recommend if anyone says to you, look, well, I could do a documentary about your life. I said, go right ahead. Because you get to see yourself in many different weight levels and hairdos.
0: And T-shirts.
1: And T-shirts, yes. The weight classes. T-shirts with jokes that mean nothing anymore, basically. (laughs) There there are some jokes in that show 20 years later still have a shelf life. I'm amazed. But there you go. One never knows. Do one.
0: Fun fact number eight: Bruce Valanche has six Emmy awards. Well,
1: it's true. I mean, I say now multiple Emmy awards because I have I have two at home here that are for that actually have my name on them They're for shows I wrote two Oscar shows with Billy Crystal, and then there are uh, there are four others for shows that I wrote that uh, won best show in their category, and they gave me an Emmy because I was part of the team so and those I farmed out to other people because they like to have Emmys on their desk uh, my agent and my manager and uh, uh, my accountant he loves having an Emmy on his desk and all of that so it adds up to six and I was nominated for a few others but uh, I mean like two or three others but I can say that cavalierly because I didn't win and
0: why bring it up do you, think that, do you think they would get upset if you lined them all up together and painted them the rainbow colors? You could have <laughs> one for each color on your mantle. I, would the awards themselves be upset? No. <laughs> the
1: Academy? I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think the TV Academy is quite as prissy about the uh, Emmys as the movie Academy is about the Oscars. But, I mean, the movie Academy says... Uh, when you win it, they said, tell you, please don't sell this. If you wish to sell it, sell it back to us. We will buy it from you and we'll give you a good price. But uh, um, we don't want them in circulation. And the TV Academy doesn't
0: do that to my knowledge. Yeah. I've, I've heard stories about that before. John Best told me that um, the security they go under when they ship them out and uh, you know, and for the new, for each year's uh, recipients, is incredible they just don't want anybody getting their hands on it getting a mold of it you know yeah. making a duplicate now We're with not. 3d printing you could i
1: don't know i don't know what when why they would send it out i mean basically at this point i mean i think in the old days they did because you would you would surrender it when you after you when you left and then uh, they would uh, engrave it and whatnot and send it back to you but even so you see lots of pictures of people with oscars on the night now, they set up a station at the Governor's uh, Ball afterwards where you can get the Emmy engraved. I don't even know. They may not do the Governor's Ball afterwards. Now, they may do a thing backstage. But they, um, uh, you can get it engraved and all that so you can take it home with you.
0: Fun fact number nine. Bruce did drag on Broadway.
1: Well, yes, I did Hairspray, which is bigger than drag. It, yes, She's a real woman. Uh, I did Hairspray on Broadway for a year. I did it on the road for a year before that. Uh, it was a highlight of my performing life. It was uh, so much fun to do. And I would do it again in a minute. And they're going out on tour again, but I think it's non-equity. I, 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 I can't. Uh, but it's, um, I, it, it was fabulous, but you know, she is, it's not, it's drag, but it's not, it's not, I don't know. It's hard to say because she really is a real woman. And everybody refers to her as a real woman and as a real, she's a real character and it's always been a drag performance. And uh, you know, I've always had the drag as women in quotes. And so I guess Edna is sort of a woman in quotes uh, because she's a little bit more, Theatrical than your uh, average Baltimore
0: housewife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and it's, you, it's a fine line. We're parsing now. Well, you followed in the footsteps of Divine, who, of course, was the original Divine. Edna Turnblad, and then yeah. and then Harvey Firestein did it next, and then you followed in his footsteps, um, and then somehow John Travolta ended up following you.
1: Well, yes. Other <laughs> people followed me first, but he did the movie that, that they decided that they did of the musical of Hairspray, and uh, he came to see the show, and, and uh, I was in it. And he said, he and he came back and gave, shared his ideas. He said, "I think she has to have a waist because <laughs> she, you she's huge. She's right. like black- mm-hmm. and uh, you know." And I, I said, "No, uh, I mean, she. I don't think so." I he loves her, the husband, for who she is. And, but he went ahead in the movie and I said, You had, he had more makeup on him than the girl. I mean, he had so much makeup. He looked like Kirstie Alley. He had so much makeup. Uh, and uh, so I thought there's, there's not that far to go for him, for her, to go up to the transformation that occurs in the course of the show. But, I, you know, it's a hundred million dollar movie. How do you argue with that? It worked.
0: It was a huge hit. So, and he was the, well, out of at least these four, he was the only one that was not openly gay. You had Divine, you had Harvey Firestein, and yourself and then well, John Travolta, which everybody wants to talk about, but, but a lot of other people have played. Michael McKean actually
1: followed Harvey on Broadway before I got there. I was the first person to do it after Harvey, but it was the national tour. Uh, and Harvey left and Michael McKean came in for five months and I followed him, Michael McKean straight. Uh, and uh, there were other people who, uh, you know, Michael Ball in London and the, the the guy did the Canadian company. A lot of straight guys have played the part. So it's not, uh, it's not an exclusively gay thing.
0: Of course, but... at least for once, the gays had the lead. The gays started <laughs> the role and the straight people followed later.
1: Uh, well, I guess if, if you're doing that, probably is not the only show on Broadway where that's the case. I'm sure. <laughs> but, it <is.
0: laughs> But
1: why go into it? Why? Why try and figure it out?
0: Fun fact number 10. Bruce owns what may be one of the world's largest personal T-shirt collections of uh, thousands of T-shirts.
1: Yeah, I do. It's it's not even a collection. I mean, a collection kind of implies that you know you know where they are at any given moment. And I mean, I just got a warehouse full of this shit. I mean, I have about a thousand of them here, and then I've got uh, the Home for Aged T-shirts in Van Nuys in California in the Valley. Uh, and the the assistant goes out and culls every now and again. She'll call me up with the phone and say, "You want this?" because we give them away and, and all that. A lot of them, the ones I keep are, are jokes. And a lot of those, again, like in Get Bruce, a lot of them are jokes that have gone out of, out of comprehension at this point. Uh, so it, it was never, uh, you know, I never was aiming to collect stuff. But uh, it's just, you know, it was just my look. That's what we used to call it. It's his look. And now it's my brand. <laughs> well. Because we're all very brand. We're very brand oriented these days.
0: And you okay. wear them everywhere, That's you wear them. a brand for, for somebody. You wear them everywhere. you've worn them to the Emmys, the Oscars, anywhere you go with a, you might have a suit on, but it's almost always a T-shirt there. Uh,
1: yeah, I did I, for a while, I had um, oh my God, it got bright. For a while, I had a um, let me see if I can cure that. I had uh, I would wear a Tux jacket but then I kind of abandoned that too because nobody was expecting it anymore at any of these things. And I had, uh, I had a tuxedo t-shirts, which are kind of, you know, kind of, it's a cheesy old joke, but I also have a, there's a whole line of, uh, you know, fake body t-shirts where it's just your neck and, and it's, it's a gorgeous girl's body or a bikini body or Bob Mackie made me one that was, uh, like, like Anne Margaret. It was, it was, uh, a gorgeous beaded gown with real rhinestones and, and, jugs coming up out of it, you know, it was pretty fabulous. Uh, but uh, so, I, so I, I, I wore those. And then now when I do it, I just find something that has a funny it's black that has a funny line on it. And that, that seems to be, I can get away with it. The important thing is, you know, you have to wear the credential of these things and the credential is on a lanyard and it dangles down and that it spoils the joke. What would kill the joke? with you know? Kill Gladys Kravitz to have this thing saying "admit him everywhere" on it. So, I have to be. I have to be skillful. I have to, you know, or strategic you, dressing,
0: or you have to invent a new um, harness like they use for you know the police guns over the. Over the shoulder? Over the shoulder. Yeah, where you can yeah, move your credentials I, off to I, the I side. Tried that, but it, it gets moved. I'd have to invent something.
1: new I used to loop it into my belt, and it would dangle yeah, between my legs. And when people had – if they had to check it, they would have to go down and look. But then, <laughs> then the head of security said, very funny, but you have to wear it around your neck. So that was what I – sometimes it's like uh, – it's. If I have to, I can pin it up there or something like that. So so it looks like a badge, you know, or that where they're going, the eagle has landed, you know, that
0: kind of thing. (laughs) So bonus fact, Bruce supports many charities, mostly focused on either the gay or Jewish communities or a combination of the two. Tell us about some of your favorite charities that you've supported over the years. <laughs> the American bulimia society
1: <laughs> with your host, <laughs> really Kate Moss say something, give us a finger. Um, well, you know, I'm, I grew up Jewish. And when you grow up Jewish, you learn that uh, a lot of people hate you and a lot of people aren't going to help you and you have to help yourself. And I always thought that was a great mantra for the gay community. As, and as a result, uh, uh there are a lot of Jewish charities, and uh, um, and when AIDS started, so I was involved with them. And when AIDS started, uh, a lot of volunteer organizations sprang up because so many people were afraid of it, and they were staffed by volunteers, obviously who weren't getting paid, and there was no money, and the government wasn't forthcoming. So we, a bunch of us, decided that what we should do is start doing what show people do and throw a show, do a benefit and raise money that way. So, uh, But it was difficult to get people to do a benefit for this disease. So I would trade off. I said, well, if you do my benefit, I'll do your benefit. And so I became uh, uh, acquainted with all the big diseases, cerebral palsy, polio, spina bifida, myasthenia gravis, you know, anxiety or disorder. I'm your man. I know all about this stuff because I've written for all of these things. Big brothers, little sisters, I've written them all. And, as there was, and those people would come and work on, on the AIDS shows that we were doing. Uh, and at the beginning, uh, some performers who had been affected directly by it, like Bette, Madonna, uh, Joan Rivers, Nell Carter, whose brother uh, died of AIDS, and they, they uh, came aboard immediately. And then uh, when Rock Hudson got sick and Elizabeth Taylor got involved that was when the whole thing went really mainstream because not only did the disease go mainstream and that the world knew about it now and everybody on the planet knew somebody who actually had it and died from it uh and the people who were at the top of the pyramid like elizabeth were known by everybody and i used to joke with her because we do a lot of charity events i would say and anybody will take your call. Even the Pope will take your call, if only to discuss jewelry. Because the you know, Pope does have a lot of jewelry, and so did Elizabeth. And we laughed, and, and on we went. So it was uh, uh, that was how I got involved with all that stuff. And it, it, it remains to this day. I was on the board of the uh, L.A. Gay and Lesbian Center for 22 years. And it's now grown to such a degree that it's become like almost a corporate thing. And that, of course, always kind of scares me away because I don't want to be involved in corporate politics. Uh, but I felt like 22 years I had, you know, I had helped <laughs> lay some kind of a groundwork anyway. Uh, so I still I'm still involved in those things. Yeah,
0: it's a good thing. And we're glad to have you there. So I I was reading something um, that was posted by a Playboy publicist who claims that you were in Wisconsin around 1980 and witnessed Hugh Hefner's most impressive erection. Is that a reference to the building? Yes, apparently. Apparently.
1: (laughs) Because I actually never did see Hugh. I'm sure Hugh saw me naked, <laughs> but I would trick with people at the Playboy Mansion visiting rock stars, and he was watching on television. He had cameras set up all over the place. This was not a secret. Uh, so I kept saying, you know, the, the hef is watching us. But at the time, it, it was a little pre-tech, you know, like the idea that somebody would have tapes and, you know, it, there was no uh, selfies and sharing and all of that stuff. So it was, it was a more innocent era, and uh that all of course changed. But uh I was uh, at the Playboy Club. It wasn't that late. I don't know, nineteen eighty, I didn't even know if they were still there. Uh when I was in Chicago from 70 to 75, we would fly up every few weeks to Lake Geneva in a private plane, the bunny jet, <laughs> uh, to see Anne Margaret or George Carlin or whoever was opening at the club. The Lake Geneva Playboy Club was a hotel and with a golf course and um it was no gambling, but it was a, a big vacation and conference center. It was a great way for corporations to get their executive staff, most all of whom were men at the time, uh, to go to a conference. You say, oh, we're going to Playboy Club. And Ooh, they'd love that. So and there were bunnies and, you know, all of that. And it was gorgeous. That area of the Wisconsin Dells is just spectacular. So again, Hef was there, and Hef would fly up with us, and we have there would be a big opening night thing, and then I would write about it for the Chicago Tribune. It was like, conflict of
0: interest? What conflict of interest? <laughs> I think um, Rob Lowe is the one that brought the secret sex videos to the forefront, that it could actually happen.
1: Well, that's And true. that was that's several, not, that was that a was decade 10 years, later. That was 89, yeah. Well, 88 is when it happened, and... At the Democratic convention in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, I was there. And um, I used to go to the Club Rio that was associated with that whole event. Um, some friends of mine in Atlanta owned it. And, wow. um, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. So, out of all the gay bars from the past, which one would you most like to go back and revisit?
1: Well, there was a, a bar in Chicago called The Trip that I really liked. And it was because it was very much of its era. It was 1970. And it was a holdover from the sixties and the fifties before that. It was, uh, I don't know that I would get, I was dressing. I hadn't come to t-shirts yet, but it was, it wasn't what you call a dress bar. There was a bar in Chicago called Kitty Sheehan, which was a dress bar. You had to be in a, in a suit and tie to go in. And Kitty Sheehan was a, uh, a drag queen who looked exactly like the mayor, Richard Daly, in drag. And we never did see them together. But that was a, that was a high-end place. And this was like, uh, it was, you didn't have to get dressed up to go, but it had a real sophisticated vibe. People sat and drank martinis and, uh, and spoke of the opera and, uh, and you know, cried over Judy Garland's death, which was fairly recent. And there would be female impersonators, there'd be uh, performers, but mostly they were drag queens. But the big star there was a guy named Arthur Blake, who was kind of legendary in the world of impersonation. Uh, he didn't work in drag, and he would do every woman in the business, but uh, and a lot of the men. And he would just have a comb, and he would change his hair. to to, And he had very long, stringy hair, so he could do very funny things with it. And uh, he, he has a couple of records that are probably still around. Uh, he was a great favorite out here. He played a club somewhere on the strip like uh, uh, Trocadero or the Magambo or the Crescendo, or probably the Crescendo. And everybody went to see him. Betty Davis loved him. She said uh, on television many times that, that he was her favorite, uh, doing an impression of him and he, of her. And he really was, did a hysterical impression of her. But so he would be at the trip a lot. He actually lived in Chicago in the summer and in in, uh, Fort Lauderdale in the winter. So he was one of the first of those queens. There are a lot of them now. Uh, It was that kind of, you know, there were that. And and they all passed through Charles Pierce, Lynn Carter, Craig Russell. They all, they all, Jim Bailey was uh, more mainstream. He played the Empire Room of the Palmer House. Uh, But they all came through and I wound up
0: writing for all of them. So there you go. So that was a pretty good experience for you, being in Chicago. The trip
1: trip would be the place, yeah.
0: Very cool. Now, you've lived through a lot of this history um, of the the gay bar scene that I've been documenting for the past couple of years. uh, Because really, it didn't get fully underway until probably the 60s to begin with. You know, in the 40s and 50s, the gay bar scene was a very underground kind of very underground yeah. um, in the 60s is when it kind of started coming of age a little bit. And then, of course, after Stonewall and into the 80s is when you really started seeing a resurgence of, you know, gay bars on every corner in some cities. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of younger people now have no idea of those experiences. They don't understand what it was like when you were coming out or even when I was coming out to not know that there were safe havens and places you can go. What do you think that the young people today could learn from exploring a little bit more about, you know, the history of of the gay world?
1: Uh, Well, I think anybody should read history just because, because we're not the first people to do a lot of the things we think we are the first people to do. Uh, and so it's uh, it, it's an education, literally, to go back and read all, uh, about all that stuff. I think probably it's uh, if if it needs to have a reason other than that, it's because uh, you understand what the struggle was like, what it was like before. You know, you like you were kind of had we had it easy. <laughs> I mean, they compared to what uh, what we went through, they have it very easy. Not that what we went through was. All that dark and devilish, except if for some people, it was. But um, we didn't have the, the, the sort of casual acceptance that uh, that goes on now, except on the very highest levels. And the casual acceptance was so casual that it was never even spoken of. But uh, uh, now it's like you know everybody's like, okay, fine, it's you know that kind of thing. And uh, and the the, the uh, I mean, even in ordinary conversation. You find more and more people are not surprised when somebody says, and this is a guy says, and this is my husband, you know. And there's there isn't that moment where they go, your yeah, husband, you know. Right. They kind of oh well yeah right they can marry and that's right why wouldn't they etc. And, and, and sometimes you see the dime drop, but a lot of times you don't. A lot of times it's like yeah right I get it. And uh, and there was a time when that was not the case. So uh, it's it's good for younger people. I think to to know about that, but you know it's so hard these days because we live in the, the the most narcissistic era ever. I mean, the internet is narcissism central, and and everybody gets to publish their first draft unfiltered, uncensored, un, un, uh, but unedited, and so uh, uh, and and outrage is the new national disease. Everybody is outraged about something, and everybody's very sensitive, and sometimes they're covering it up in awoke woke sensibility. So you you they, so That legitimizes it, and which is appropriate at sometimes, and sometimes it's no, they're just legitimizing their own myth, their own claddiness. But um, it's uh, so it's hard to say to them. You know, there was a time where it's hard to say to them that there's anything that happened before this era, which is all about them. But I won't get I won't get myself laid by saying this. You know, fortunately big ticket movies are coming back and I can go take some guy to say Godzilla versus Kong and guarantee myself a good night.
0: Right then. <laughs> work. work. Whoa. Well, it's been really great talking to you about, you know, your history in the gay world and, and your, your professional history in general. A lot of people I don't think realized how diverse your talents are. Um, oh, wow. Thank you. And, um, you know, it's really it's really nice to see that you've been out there in the gay world for 50 years plus and made it through quite fine, successful financially, um, professionally, personally, and you're still here telling us about those stories. So that's really great. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about? God,
1: no. What could there be? <laughs>
0: I don't know, social security number, phone number.
1: Uh, have, you, <laughs> have you gone through every gay bar in every city in America? In your your reminiscence? I,
0: I have not. It's a very difficult um, thing to do. So far, I have documented about 1,300 defunct gay bars from across the U.S. And at the time, when I was reaching 1,000, I thought, wow, that's quite a few. I didn't realize there were that many. And then...
1: That's amazing,
0: isn't it? Uh, well, then I got a... Um, a little slap in the face um, A couple of guys that I've been Communicating with in Chicago Who are specifically focused on Recording the gay bar history Of Chicago uh, sent, me, yeah. sent me A list that they've compiled uh, That includes 700 Gay bars from Chicago alone Over the years, probably dating back To the 30s or 40s And um, uh-huh. Now, so I know of another 600 or so that I haven't documented yet, but when I document them, I want to know not only the name, but I want to have a description of the bar, the street address, the years of operation. Some of the ones they've documented, they've only said, well, you know, Bruce told us this bar existed on, you know, Halston Street, and it was there from 1982 or 83. That doesn't give me enough to work with. I, I want to know. I want to be able to say it was it was here. This is what kind of bar it was. And so keeping that in mind, though, that right. tells me there's probably thousands more bars that I haven't found yet.
1: There, there probably are. And also, you know, when somebody says it's a gay bar, what does that mean? Right. I mean, my I favorite gay place in right Chicago was, was a club called Punchinello's, which may be on their list. Which would not qualify as a gay bar. It was full of gay people, but it was a show bar. It was where people right. from the theater went afterwards, and um, it was pretty gay, but it wasn't gay. It wasn't. It wasn't you know on anybody's list. I don't think. It, right. You know there used to be guides, uh, the Damron guide, which would tell you where to where how gay hotels, k- cruising spots, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Spartacus, that was the one you used when you went overseas. Uh, and i 'm sure if they 're around they 're probably just websites now, but um so and you never know when people tell you, oh yeah, there was a, and and also like this is eighty two eighty three if it was there for a hot minute and then it went
0: away, but right, and we 've all seen those i 've seen bars yeah. that are have closed basically before they opened, yeah, right, you know they had enough money to to stock the bar once and have an opening party and uh and that 's as long as they lasted. Let's see what happens. And that concludes another segment of the Gabe Archives podcast. You can find more podcasts at GabeArchives.com slash podcast. We also have more information about this podcast and links to the other podcasts we have completed. We hope you enjoy your trip down memory lane.